Hey everybody, this is Brain Matters. I'm Matt Davis. And I am Anthony Lacanina. I don't know if we've reset in a while, kind of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Should we give a little insight? Do you know what you're doing? I don't know what I'm doing in general, but that's a separate story. Okay. But this podcast... um, We do kind of know what this podcast is. We do a little bit. And what we're essentially doing is providing interviews with neuroscientists. And these neuroscientists happen to visit the university where we are both graduate students, University of Texas at Austin. And so these, these professors are invited part of a seminar series and they come and give a talk. And after the talk, um, that's when the, the fun happens. That's when the fun happens. That's when that's when the we get magic. Them. Yeah. And uh, so. So, yeah, we we interview them after their talk. So sometimes they reference the talk in the interview. You know, that happens in this particular episode. So if you're ever wondering, like, what are they, why do they say, keep saying talk? Like, that's what's happening. Oh, yeah. I guess we've never said that before. We may not have. You like. Yeah, exactly. So, hey, um, what do you call a bunch of jellyfish? What? <laughs> I happen to know this answer because I looked it up on my phone five seconds ago, but it's a smack, a smack. Although I saw that that's not what scientists call it, but what do scientists call it? Do you know? Is it some? It's probably it's probably thing? a very they don't use that terminology. Yeah, yeah. like a I don't know a bunch of f-ing jellyfish. <laughs> uh, a f- ton of jellyfish. We're gonna earn our explicit hashtag for this one. So, what do you think a group of zebrafish are called? Uh, hmm. Any ideas? Any? Well, it's like. Zebra and fish, so some sort of uh, well, a fish, a school of fish, right? That's like a classic. yeah. So a zebra. What's a group of zebras? A z- Ooh, I don't know. A flock? A, f- a herd? A herd? It's a it's a herd school. Yeah. <laughs> is that what we're? Is that what we landed on? Uh, I, I think we need to workshop that a little we bit should more. Definitely, yeah. But in this episode, um, we we focus heavily on the zebrafish which is a model organism in neuroscience, which has a lot of really interesting properties. We haven't talked about it before. So why? Okay. So why would, why would somebody use a zebrafish as a model? Well, this thing is about a hundred thousand neurons. So in the continuum of species between say a C. elegans, a nematode and uh, higher primates, they kind of sit comfortably in the middle. So you can ask a little bit more advanced questions than you could in a C. elegans, but you have a much simpler system. You only have 100,000 neurons to work with instead of in a human where you have 86 billion. So you've simplified that space, but you can still ask interesting questions about it. Another thing that is really important about them is in their developmental stages, in their embryonic stage, they're actually pretty transparent. And that allows what? You can see the brain? You can see the nervous system, yeah. Having a clear organism allows you to to use a lot of the more advanced techniques in neuroscience like optogenetics, calcium imaging, all of these things that depend on delivering light to a particular group of uh, neurons or measuring light emitted from a particular group of neurons. And they, they have interesting behaviors at this developmental stage too. They can do escape things, they can do motor stuff, and prey capture. And it just so happens that today's episode we're talking about uh, a lot of motor behaviors. Okay, so yeah, you've been talking a lot about zebrafish. Is this relevant to the person you talk to? I hope so. No, it's actually next episode. Oh, okay. In this episode, we're talking about dopamine and addiction. Oh, okay, great. Uh, sorry for the for leading you on. <laughs> no, yes, well, of course, we're talking about zebrafish. We're talking about motor stuff. I talked to an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, Todd Thiel. And that's Todd with one D, because there's actually another Todd Thiel in neuroscience, um, he That's studies dopamine and addiction. He studies dopamine addiction. The <laughs> the aforementioned. Maybe someday we'll get Todd Double D. 
be on the on the uh, podcast. That's definitely on our podcast bucket list. Get both top deals. Yeah. And so what kind of questions has he sort of been addressing using this model organism? So we want to look at a particular group of neurons and we want to either control them and see what the behavioral output is. And when I say we, I mean him. I was going to say we are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I got stuff to do later. Hey, you know. (laughs) So he, he's looking at the circuits of uh, motor pathways, pre-motor pathways. What do particular groups of neurons do when you stimulate them? And can you measure that behavioral output? And one important part of the zebrafish that's interesting to him is, get ready for this, the nucleus medial longitudinal fasciculus. Okay. Can you say that three times for me? No, I'm not even (laughs) going to try. Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, But there's some interesting behaviors that were discovered using optogenetic techniques stimulating this uh, group of neurons. Okay, cool. So you'll be talking about that beautifully named area a lot in the talk? Yes. Uh, okay. I hope you find a way to shorten it. <laughs> I, I think I, there's probably an acronym or two. Okay. Well, that sounds fascinating. I am excited to hear about this uh, swarm or herd of school of zebrafish research. And I hope out there there's some kind of group of cochleas. I don't know what you would call that, like a... Like, a murder, like crows? A murder of crows, yeah. A yeah. smack. A uh, smack of cochleas. All right. I hope there's a smack of cochleas out there waiting to be perked. Perk away. Get to the episode. <laughs> just briefly explain the general themes in your lab and the general research projects that you work on? So my lab is just just getting going and we're going to continue what I did in my postdoc, which was to look into sensory motor circuits in invertebrates and in, in our case, larval zebrafish to identify at the level of individual neurons, how sensory stimuli are encoded, how those neurons that encode that information take that information and pass it on to downstream structures to produce the different tail motions uh, that ultimately allow the animal to complete its task, be it capturing prey or avoiding something that's trying to eat it, predator. So taking sort of that global outlook and then trying to look into sort of individual brain systems, make connections to what's going on in, in mammals. So ultimately, You know, the goal is sort of to ask really good questions, do some basic science, but also in the end, try to make insights into the human condition, hopefully, and and disease and and things along those those lines. Great. Fantastic. Could you give us some examples of sensory motor tasks that you would maybe humans would encounter from day to day? Not tasks, but just, you know, I'm sitting here. I have a water bottle. I'm picking up that water bottle to drink it. And uh, that is basic task, but it involves lots of sensory motor integration. So I got to identify this object. I've got to put my hand out. I've got to grasp it, bring it to my mouth, you know, drink it. We're constantly doing this. Walking 
uh, you know, so a lot of this stuff is just subconscious, right? But it's fundamental to basically everything we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you study at all where uh, you get good at emotion, where you, you learn a task really well, say, playing an instrument or something? Right. Does any of your research relate to that? So I, we haven't gone into that yeah. area. There's the field of zebrafish sort of motor control has really blossomed, I'd say, in the last 10 years. It's has a, you know, a, a fairly old history, but in terms of the, the number of people studying it, it's gotten a lot larger. And there are labs that are just specifically focusing on, on that aspect of sort of motor learning. Can you get the fish to respond in an altered fashion? You know, so sort of can, can you train it up as you uh, give it bias stimuli? And I think that's going to be a fascinating area that people are getting really good, sort of the really good handholds into. And that was actually the, so the zebrafish, the first vertebrate where people have done whole brain imaging. Right? Yeah. And this is sort of where it's gotten really famous. And the first studies were looking at exactly that motor learning. So mm-hmm. cool. I think there's gonna be some yeah, great answers coming out in great. The, the next few years. I would really like to dive in and talk about the zebrafish because I don't think we've had somebody that studied it on the podcast before. So right on. Okay. Um, Glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah. You are the representative of the zebrafish. As it stands. And so so what's it all about? Where does it come from? What is what is it? Sure. So zebrafish got their start. Yeah, go, go back to the beginning, I guess. Yeah. So where I did my PhD was at the University of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And zebrafish started being studied at the University of Oregon. So George Streisinger was a professor at the university, and he was looking for a new model organism to study the genetics of neuroscience. So he wanted to look into how the brain was, how it developed, how it was organized, what the genetic code was that sort of produced the circuitry. And so to do that, he wanted an animal that developed outside of the mother. So fish are perfect for that. They lay eggs. And he wanted it to have a lot of uh, transparency. So you could look through and watch the developmental processes that happen, look through the animal, which is, of course, is incredibly powerful. So they're pretty much clear. They're pretty much clear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have some pigment cells. We have mutants now that have no pigment cells. So they're basically glass, essentially, can look right through them. But what George did was he just went to pet stores and got a bunch of different fish, different species set them up in the lab, tried to get them to mate, and found that zebrafish were the winners. They were easy to keep, robust, weren't really fragile in the lab, and yeah, and they won. And so he started, and then he had a bunch of postdocs, which are many of them are still at Oregon, and it's just blossomed. And so the fish is, is wonderful for all the reasons I said, and also yeah. now, you know, when you get a big community starting to work on an animal, genetic tools, behavior... And now it's, you know, drug screening is becoming a super exciting aspect of zebrafish research. Yeah. Yeah. So you can screen using these small larval fish for compounds that alter behavior. Mm-hmm. And so. So you'd be able to do hundreds or thousands of fish at a time, essentially, and just. Yeah. I mean, they're high. on some drug. You can have high throughput assays where yeah. you're, you have fish in basically uh, multi-well dishes. So you can assay 12 fish at a time up to even higher numbers and have a robot pipette in different drugs and look at behavioral effects. You know, one thing I would love to do in the future is combine the use of optogenetics with high throughput drug screening. I think it was a really fascinating area to Mm. sort of the intersection of those two techniques. Yeah. So what about 
the behaviors of the fish sure what do these larval fish like to do yeah so we we don't really know what they do in the wild mm -hmm. and that's of course what you want to know you, you know knowing the behaviors that the brain evolved to do is where you want to be studying uh, behavior those are the behaviors you want, you, you want to be looking at seeing what exactly those circuits are are designed to to perform you can go in the lab and you can give them different stimuli. And like I showed, this optomotor response has been shown to be a critical, critically important behavior. The animals will do it basically nonstop. Mm -hmm. And this is important, we think, in the wild at least, keeping them sort of in a stationary position in a, in a in flowing water. Okay. Because if you have sort of, if, if you're a fish moving in a river that has a current, you will get optic flow across the eye. Mm -hmm. And the fish's response is such that it will try to reduce that optic flow. So it wants to keep things stationary. Yeah. And in that way, it's you know not getting swept away. And of course, they have to eat, right? And so there's this obvious prey capture response. So at about five days post-fertilization, the animals basically right before they start swimming, they're sort of laying on the bottom of the dish and they will swim up to the surface sort of randomly. And, it, and they're kind of filling their swim bladder with air. And so that swim bladder is what gives them buoyancy. In about five days, that bladder fills up. They've gone to the surface enough and filled up their bladder, and then they become uh, buoyant. And then they have a yolk that they've gotten from their mother, but that is disappearing, and so they have to start eating. And uh, so you can put in different protozoa into the, into the media, and they will just start hunting. It's not something that they seem to need to learn. They just, you know, it's sort of a, a program that's that's in there. They see little objects, they're going to go after them. They'll go after air bubbles if they're small enough. Yeah. Any sort of shiny little object that they can seem to fit into their mouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other behavior is sort of escape behavior. They don't want to get eaten. Certainly, yeah. So those are sort of the three main behaviors that I think have been, been studied in sort of a rigorous fashion. People have also looked at trying to get fish to do learning, to associate cues with environments. Mm -hmm. And that's been a little bit more difficult with these young fish. Yeah. You know, so I typically study fish between day five and day seven. That's when these genetic tools that I talked about are sort of the most robust. Yeah. 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 So it, as all of these sort of transgenic lines that I showed tend to kind of turn off their expression around day seven, day eight, day mm -hmm. nine. It's unfortunate because a lot of more interesting things are developing yeah. at that point. And there's been recent papers showing sort of social behaviors developing a few weeks into their life, maybe two or three weeks. Yeah. And so it'd be fascinating to do these kind of studies on fish of that age. Yeah. Um, you run into other problems at that age. We head fix these animals in, in agarus, mm -hmm. and you can get away with that at a younger age because the animals exchange gases across their skin. But as they get older, they need their gills to start you know, coming online. And so about day 10 to day 12, it's thought that, you know, that's the switch from when they need to have active gill system. So if they're encased in agarose, it's not going to work so well. A really cool thing will be to um, develop restraining methods that allow for them to be restrained, but of course, getting oxygen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this has been solved in, in larger fish. It's just everything is kind of on miniature okay. for us, which... What size some, are we talking about? How big are these? About four millimeters okay. in length. Yeah. Yeah. I studied sea elegans in sure. grad school. So these are yeah, roughly four. Four yeah. worms. <laughs> four worms. Millimeter yeah. for sea elegans. Yeah. Do they remain clear as they age so, into adulthood? No. But we have mutants. So there's sure. um, 
a wild type fish. There's different strains people use, but they have pigment and they develop two different types of pigment. There's uh, melanophores and iridophores. Mm -hmm. And iridophores give you sort of the shinier on the scales. Yeah, exactly. Melanophore is darker, more solid. But there are different mutants where you can disrupt the pigment. And one that we typically use has uh, lacks the the pigment in the melanophores. Mm -hmm. And these animals basically just look kind of pinkish when they're adults. Um, They still have the iridophores. You can make the double mutant, and this is called Casper, the ghost kind of. And so you can see right through these guys. They have, you can see their organs as adults. You can see the brain in the adult. So are they more friendly? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you can take that. Out. Yeah, uh, um, they are. Yeah, they are the friendliest fish. Okay, great, awesome. If they're giving you good data, then I think they considered. Yeah, I consider them to be friendly. <laughs> so, what about the the nervous system of these fish? Um, yeah, what do we know about it? How does it compare to other things we've studied? Where does it fit in? You know. Yeah. So, so if you look at all the the model systems, the genetic model systems in neuroscience. Traditionally, I mean, that keeps growing as genomes keep being sequenced. You know, we have our C. elegans, or fruit fly, zebrafish, mouse, and now people studying marmosets, as I saw today, and macaques yep. and things. So if you look at the fruit fly and the larval fish, we're looking at comparably similar numbers. Our larval zebrafish is about 100,000 neurons. C. elegans, 302, yep. you know, and then up the line. C. elegans and its screening and size of circuits and the ability to really connect genes in those identified cell types is kind of unprecedented and and the high throughput nature of C. elegans research and also just a tremendous developed community of sharing resources and you know and then drosophila with its you know, i mean now incredible efforts at places like Janelia Research Campus and and other universities looking at cell types and and especially the olfactory system as such uh, similar system to that in, in mammals. And, you know, th- then our fish comes in and the fish, I, I like to think of as sort of like a, a, a toy problem to the vertebrate brain architecture. So the structure, I studied this nucleus of the medial longitudinal fasciculus, big mm-hmm. mouthful. Yep. Uh, not exactly sure what this might be in, let's say, a mouse or a human, what, what this nucleus is. It could be that, you know, those different cell types are an actual nucleus. Yeah. And, you know, so... What size? Is it 10 cells or is it, you know, two cells eventually become, you know, something that yeah. is homologous in, in a human? But what we do know, you know, is that we have an optic tectum and that's the same as the superior colliculus. And we mm-hmm. have the reticular spinal system and, and the olfactory bulbs. And, you know, they have a little forebrain. They have this pallium and it's compact and we can look at all the neurons. We can look at all of the activity patterns in that in that region and the thalamus and the hypothalamus. And yeah. so, yeah. you know... As we're dissecting more and more, I think the ability to look at what's potentially tens of cells versus thousands or yeah. even more in, 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 in a rodent, yeah. we can pull out sort of basic principles of how this thing's working. So the relationship between structure and function is going to be a lot easier when you're you know, dealing with handfuls of cells mm-hmm. uh, versus the numbers that thousands or millions yes and so yeah I, I i see the fish fitting in a really nice position to where it's close enough to sort of the higher vertebrates and uh where insights and findings that we make i think can generalize hopefully to to the circuitry and in, in mammals yeah 
And it seems to be well positioned to take advantage of the range of techniques that we have in neuroscience. Yeah, the fish is nice. Most things work, you know, so a lot of these techniques you'll bring on, you know, someone develops it and it's, it's not always clear it's going to work in your system of choice. But we've been lucky in fish. I think most, you know, most of these techniques have, have panned out. Yeah. Especially with these calcium sensors and most of the optogenetic tools and cell labeling techniques, Brainbow and, you know, these things keep coming online and recent calcium integrators that have been developed like this uh, Campari protein. So, and it's, you know, keeping up with the arsenal that's coming along. That's one of the key things now in neuroscience, of course, is yeah. keeping up that's being, uh, being on that cutting edge. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive to do that isn't it <laughs> yeah well the yeah. resources i mean for myself having uh starting out relatively small lab it's tough to try to bring on all the you know newest latest tools and the community is developed and it's a great community and people are really open i think to yeah to sharing reagents and you know just trying to push the field forward because you know we're still in a lot of ways you know proving the system so i should say it i can go back to zebrafish development a little sure. bit um so streisinger in the beginning you know he had this idea of doing nervous system development and, and ultimately behavior yeah but it's a lot of the great questions that came out at first were saying just development in general development of all different systems mm -hmm. there were a lot of nervous system studies in, in the beginning especially neural crest and, and these kind of areas of investigation but then the fish i think in the early days a lot of the tools that have developed more recently obviously weren't weren't around and in order to study this small animal you needed advances in imaging and advances in molecular biology to really dive in to the circuits, which is, you know, such a such an important area right now of research. And so I think as a community, we've come together, you know, trying to establish this system as one which can supply some really significant answers to how circuits in the brain produce behavior. Certainly. I'd like to talk about your specific research. Sure. And could you tell us what behavior you're investigating and what you found out about the neurobiology of that behavior. So the lab is going to focus sort of on the, the activity of those neurons in the midbrain, those premotor reticular spinal neurons, and identify how they're connected to via you know, inner neurons or motor neurons and then to the muscle. So that's, you know, I think the ultimate goal is to go from premotor all the way to muscle. And then you sort of have a full grasp of part of a, a sensory motor circuit. But we don't know the activity patterns in those motor neurons. We don't know yeah, if there are inner neurons upstream. So one area is definitely to try to complete that circuit, sort of look at the intervening parts. And we only looked at optomotor behavior. So there's all these other behaviors, escape behavior, prey capture, do these neurons do the same thing? Are they, are they helping position the tail across behaviors or is it very specific for optomotor? Mm -hmm. My guess is that it's going to be involved in probably all of these behaviors because it does seem that, you know, these different pieces of the motor control system are shared. It would kind of make sense. You're sort of for the efficiency of the system. You know, you don't want to have so many redundancies. You have a postural control for every different behavior or a speed control for every different behavior. So, yeah, so that's definitely one area that we want to look into and, the other area is, again, diving into what are the action selection circuits upstream, right? Mm -hmm. So we have yeah. the basal ganglia is the classic. That's that's the structure that's that's controlling all of this in, in, in us. Yeah. And we know fish have these circuits. What they look like in a larval fish is a little unclear. And so we want to go in and at first identify what these circuits, what their anatomy is. 
and then work to kind of use the same technique and go through, do imaging, do optogenetics, do ablations, and use the advantage of the fish of being able to sort of look at a complete circuit. You know, we can, everything is so compact, we can image all the neurons, just basically see how it appears to be functioning. What are the activity patterns? What happens if we break one part of it? And these are studies that you can't do in a mouse. It's just, it's too, the brain is, the brain regions are too remote from the surface. Yeah. And that's the area that I'm sort of most excited to, mm-hmm. to, to dive into. So look, yeah, look, look at these different behaviors and look at those brain structures and see what's controlling the switching, what's, what's making the decisions, yeah. basically. So what have you been able to show in terms of, in terms of a behavior? You have this group of neurons in yep. this nucleus. What happens when you stimulate them? What happens when you ablate them? So these neurons in the in the midbrain that I studied for for most of my most of my postdoc are part of the reticular spinal system, which is involved in transforming motor commands into uh, commands that reach the spinal cord. So it's producing the variations in motor outputs that we see. There was about 300 of these neurons in the larval fish, and the majority of them sort of have an unknown function over the last five to six years or even longer. There's been identified certain cells that are involved in turning, certain cells that are involved in escaping or the speed of escapes, but the vast majority didn't have a, a, a really um, nailed down function. The lab that I joined first studied this midbrain cluster, this nucleus of the medial longitudinal fasciculus. I'll call it the nuke MLF mm-hmm. for short. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And they'd shown it's a, a few neurons in this nucleus were involved in prey capture behavior. Okay. And so that got me interested prior to joining the lab. And, and I wrote a grant to, to study these cells and prey capture. And, you know, there was all these tools coming online and the optogenetic tools. And so first thing I did was just put chenorhodopsin in these neurons and, and see you know, what happens when you activate them. Mm-hmm. And we saw this really strange sort of pendulum-like movement of the tail that lacked oscillations. Yeah. And this is something you don't see in a wild fish <laughs> or a fish just swimming around in a dish. So it was a little bit unusual. Yeah. And what we ultimately discovered was that it appears that a subpopulation of neurons in this nucleus are actually positioning the tail or helping sort of give the tail a stiffness during swims. So it, something that we thought most looked like postural control. Of course, all animals that are vertebrates are walking around. You need to have some sort of rigidity or some kind of muscle tonus. Otherwise, things would just be sort of wildly moving yeah. around, right? Yeah. So yeah, using the optogenetics and then imaging the most sort of parsimonious answer to what this nucleus was doing, at least partially, was postural control. It makes, yeah, it makes sense. Animals need to do this. And the focus primarily in the past on in zebrafish research was on, you know, swimming. You know, swimming is the most sort of obvious thing that they're doing. Their tail is moving and it's it's a beautiful system to study rhythm generation and all sorts of things. But there's other aspects. And so we think we've added one piece of that puzzle by including guidance of those swims that are produced. And very sort of specific set of neurons, right? Yes. Um, a few hundred or even less than that. In this nucleus, there are these... So the ones that we have identified that are producing this postural control are small in size. So yeah. there's small neurons and then there are large neurons that also exist in this nucleus. And a separate work has shown that the large ones are involved in speed control and the small ones, as I said, are, are these postural neurons. They number, you know, it's, it's a little bit variable from animal to animal, but probably, you know, on the order of 
10 per side. Yeah. Yeah. So out of the 100,000, it seems that, you know, they're, yeah. it's a small subpopulation that's, that's doing this. This is where it gets pretty tricky in terms of, I guess, the level of detail that we're asking from our studies. So I'm just thinking, what would happen if, in a lot of studies, you just put um, uh, a bunch of channel rhodopsin in that area and you're not discriminating between the different cell populations. Types, right. The cell type stuff, yeah. Um, and we do that often in mam- mammalian systems. We just, this brain area, you know, we're hitting all the cells and then we flash it with light and yep. we, we see a behavioral output. But you have specific subpopulations. They're not divided by being interneurons or excitatory cells, are they? They're just... No, we, yeah. we, we think that they're all glutamatergic yeah. in this area. And the key, you know, cell types... Even though they're small and large, each large neuron has its own projection pattern, its own sure. gene expression profile. The yeah. small neurons I showed, we found at least two different types based on projection patterns. So when whenever you're doing those optogenetic experiments, you have to be cognizant that, yes, I'm, I'm not stimulating one cell. I'm stimulating all this variety of cells. And is it a natural stimulation? Probably not. You know, yeah. you're, is the brain just bulkly activating these cells and firing them? No, there's... There's nuance, of course, in, in how they're activated. So it's a huge caveat that we always have to consider. And it was a concern when I was doing those experiments because I was hitting this area with a constant intensity of light, activating all those neurons at once. So you wonder, is this, you know, is this a natural thing that I'm producing? But we used different levels of stimulation. We saw sort of a graded response, which was reassuring, um, and then a behavioral effect that was consistent when you ablated them. And the other thing that I think is important is, you know, we did try to take out different cell types using the laser ablation technique. So say, take out the big cells in that way, we're just stimulating the small cells and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so you, you need to try to go to lengths yeah. to, to do that. And reviewers now, I think are pretty, pretty savvy to all those, to all those questions and saying, you know, what are you stimulating? Do you yeah. know, have you, have you thought about this exactly? Yeah. So, cause at first maybe. When it first came on the scene, it's like, this is our answer to causality, showing that we have established causality for this nucleus or group of neurons and stuff. But right. you ha- still have to go beyond that initial stimulation experiment and approach it from different angles. Right. Try like, different techniques, ablation. Like you, There's still a lot going into. You have to be careful when you do optogenetic stimulation to make conclusions because could be a downstream structure mm-hmm. you know and yeah. i was always used to doing loss of function in c elegans doing like laser ablations and and that's how people are in zebrafish as well you can do them and of course lesions in in, in all systems but now i think you going to be required to kind of do both <laughs> yeah sure yeah to to get both working and both working you know in, in your brain area so it's the bar gets a little higher yeah you know with using with using these techniques mm-hmm. so you're your new professor yep how has your thinking or approach to your science changed going from being a postdoc to now being a professor so I would say there's there's quite a few different sort of challenges and in, in thinking sort of on a bigger scale um, so when you're a postdoc you're very focused on your project. You might have a few projects often and, you know, getting, getting that, nailing that project to the point where you have a really, you know, cohesive story that you can then use to help sell yourself to, to universities to get, to get yourself a job. And now the role is to, you know, develop a really 
strong research program with multiple arms. You know, you, you're going to have multiple students. My goal is to have maybe three to four grad students, couple of postdocs, not not too much bigger, some undergrads. But that that involves a lot of a lot of different projects and a lot of different new approaches you're going to take. And so I think that's the biggest challenge for me and the biggest change is changing the scale of your thinking and managing those ideas in it in a way that's productive for everyone involved. Whereas, you know, in the postdoc, yeah, you are you are sort of focused really on, on a few ideas. Yeah. And now yeah. it's now it's bigger. Okay. That'd yeah. Great. Um, are you able to maintain any hobbies outside of your work? I know you're constantly in the lab writing yeah. grants and stuff. Do you have anything else? Yeah, it's been uh it's it's been tough. I guess yeah. in the last year, so I've Hobbies previous uh, to the last year were <laughs> um, definitely was an avid outdoors person, skiing yeah. and and sports and such, and DJed quite a bit. Did you? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, what what genre? Genre of all over. I yeah, did, sure. I did house music. I did jazz, hip hop. Awesome. Yeah, I did some in San Francisco and then a bit in in Germany when I was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that hasn't been happening for oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, at home, at home a little bit. Yeah. And let's see. So yeah, to answer that, I'd say it's hobbies are taking a, a little bit of a backseat sure. right now. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah. But I think we're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Good? Great. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. First podcast. All right. First zebrafish. Cool. Thanks for listening. While this episode is coming to an end, there is plenty more Brain Matters content for you to enjoy. If you follow us on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter, you'll find videos and articles related to the science we talk about, plus links to any of the music that we feature. Did you know that we did a recent photo shoot? If you go there now, you can get a sneak peek at some of those photos. They were done by our friend, Miss Raz, a local artist and scientist who blends her two passions. Go check out her work at MissRaz.com. And if you haven't done so already, let us know if you enjoy the show by leaving us a review or a ranking on iTunes. Those help us maintain visibility on the charts, and they make us feel really, really good. The music featured on today's episode was by Dude Ellsbury. They're a rock outfit out of Austin, Texas. You can find their music at DudeEllsbury.Bandcamp.com. As always, we'll post a link on our website, brainpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.